Love the cases. Love the clauses. Love the adverbs and the antecedents. Love the words. From ELFM. Remember me Though I have to say goodbye Remember me Don't let it make you cry For even if I'm far away I hold you in my heart I sing a secret song to you Each night we are apart Remember me So good evening, you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. And in this series of interviews I've been doing for the last six months or so with people in the arts who produce work, sometimes invisibly, sometimes more visibly, I'm talking this afternoon, this evening, to Ellie Harrison, director, artistic director of the Grief series. So hello, Ellie. Hi, Peter. Hi. Thanks so much for coming on the programme. So first of all... Um, We've got a lot to talk about, but but for people who don't know what the grief series is and what you do, perhaps you could just, yeah, tell us. Yeah, so the grief series is a sequence of seven projects that create spaces for people to talk about loss, bereavement and end of life. And I suppose it sort of came about by accident. I've been making it since 2010, so a good long while now. Mm. <laughs> um, but I made a show um, about my experiences of losing people. And what started to happen were people coming up to me after the show saying, oh, that really reminded me of when I lost my partner or my parents. And um, people started donating their stories to me. I became a bit of a grief magnet. And um, so it seemed that it, there was a real need to create these kind of social, non-clinical spaces for people to talk about these things and also for them to be able to talk about it with humour or uh, with laughter as well as sadness. So for the past 10 years, I've just been making projects where it's all allowed, really, where people can um, celebrate and mourn the memory of people they've lost. When I looked at the website this morning, Grief Series website, uh, it's wonderful because you open the website and there is this colour, so many vibrant mm. colours immediately. The, uh, it's, a, it's a picture of what I believe is an ofrenda, and you can tell us what that is, but it's a whole table of wonderful things, but bright electric blue and green and, and red. And uh, that says so much about your project, I think, and what I know of it. Is that... The intention to counteract the the sort of the dark colours of that we associate with funerals. Yeah, I think so. There's a, a little bit of a kind of societal pushback, really. And I suppose for me, when people are talking about grief, what they're actually talking about is love, and they're sharing um, memories of people that they really love, even if they love them in a kind of complex way. It doesn't have to be. Um, simple it can be nuanced and layered and you can get irritated with the people you love but I suppose what the grief series tries to do is bring a sense of colour and celebration to that process um, and I think you know I've been more in more recent years working with artists from Mexico and you know where Britain has a, a respectful silence they have music and where Britain has black they have every colour of the rainbow. So it's been really inspiring to work with those artists and learn from and learn from their culture. Well, I wanted to ask you a bit about the collaborations you've done. But I, yeah, when, in the section All That Lives on the website, uh, I, I loved the wording you had uh, for that project, particularly links between artists and communities in Yorkshire and Mexico City. I just loved the... Uh, I love the idea of, of of these of these links and building and 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 I mean to go back to what you were saying. I th another thing you say in the website, you talk about in the, in on the homepage, you talk about Oscar nominated tears that we've become as a culture much better at at 
crying or expressing our emotions maybe on screen and you talk about the death of princess diana and all that sort of stuff but it's but that's for you isn't really what it seems to be about and we we, we've become better at demonstrating grief are we any better as a culture at really um sort of expressing it culturally well i think we are getting better i think I think people are growing sceptical of the kind of commodification of emotion and that idea that, oh, well, at the end of the reality television episode, it'd be really good if the band that got sent home cried. I think people have got a good radar for that. And I think we are beginning to get better at those conversations around loss and, and bereavement. But, you know, it is really hard. And I think... Um, a big part of what I've been trying to do is make that process less scary and say, you know, sometimes saying, I don't know what to say is the best thing to say. Um, and it's it's so much better than the kind of silence and isolation that a lot of people told me they were experiencing after their bereavement. They said, oh, you know, I feel like a leper, a neighbor crossed the street to avoid talking to me. So I suppose I'm trying to create spaces where we can have a bit of a rehearsal or people can um lean into that discomfort and go oh it's not as scary as i thought after all well it reminds me of two i mean brings to mind two things for me i'm reading a book a novel at the moment by Comte bean called nora webster i don't know if you know that no that's a yeah lovely novel about a woman who's I think, set in the 1950s in ireland and it's about yeah a woman who's just lost her husband and i'm only about 20 or 30 pages in but already Within that, there is uh, a kind of discussion, really. There's various scenes that show the awkwardness of people around someone who's just lost somebody, the inadequacy of what we have, really. And and also, I mean, this is somebody local that I know lost their daughter, and, and I remember she, mm. she said how people stay away. Yeah, they, 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 because they want to say, they don't want to say the wrong thing. I mean, so yes, rehearsal would be great. And I love the idea of being encouraged to say, I don't know what to say, but that, and that's, that's contact of some sort. Mm, mm. And I think, you know, art is also, uh, as you said before, like I work a lot with colour. Um, you know, sometimes when we're beyond words, gestures can be really beautiful. Um, you know, a really wise friend, uh, when they, they lost their sister, they said, oh, you know, kind people send flowers, and uh, but wise people send food. <laughs> and I thought that was a really, a really nice phrase. And as I suppose what, what I'm trying to do is create a bit of a bridge where we can use words, but we can also use music or uh, visual gestures as a way of showing support and solidarity with people when they're having a really difficult time. And I really love what you said about um, about grief really being about love. I think that's absolutely right, isn't it? Ali, would it be lovely to hear a bit more about the kind of projects that you've done as part of the Greece, Grief series? But first of all, I wanted to ask you about um, this last six months and, and how that's been, well, how, how has that been for you personally, first of all? Well, I think for everybody, it's been, you know, a time of great upheaval. I mean, I think in some ways, um, freelance artists are used to precarity. We're used to working from home. We're used to working with very few resources often. And so in some ways, it's been a much easier transition for us. You know, I've really felt for people that are used to going to the office every day and now can't do that or are used to having... Um, one place that they go to to work um, but also you know <laughs> all of the things that make uh, being an artist challenging uh, the precarity <laughs> mm. um, have all got intensified and I and I suppose as well we've really felt quite honoured because there's been a real spike in people getting in touch which is not something that we would wish but we're we're glad that we can sort of help and signpost people at this time. So people have been ringing me saying, I don't think I'm able to go to my mum's funeral. What can I do to creatively mark that? Or what are the funeral restrictions in Stockport? Or mm -hmm. I have a life limiting illness and, and the funeral that I planned has gone out the window if I 
if I, if I don't make it out the other side of COVID. So they've been some really challenging conversations, but I think at the same time, um, I felt really honored that people feel they can ring me at a point where it's getting very real. And it feels like we're sitting right in the middle of where art and life meet. So yeah, that's been an honor really. Absolutely. And you mentioned being um, in the early stage of the project of what you call a grief magnet, but to, that, that hasn't that hasn't worried you. Obviously, it's, it's something you feel that you've been able to offer in the way of support and your, your kind of massive experience in, in, in this field over the last six months. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been a lot of um, signposting. And I think one of the things that we've really been careful about from the beginning of the series is embedding care um, and ethical care you know how can we how can we care for audiences and people taking part in the projects but then also how can I care for my team my collaborators and how do I make sure that I care for myself as well so um you know we've been working as hard as possible at that <laughs> um so that we can be sustainable and some of what you're talking about in terms of what are the the questions, what are the you know the funeral restrictions in Stockport? That that, that in a way, as you say, doesn't sound as though it might have been in your original remit, as it were, for the grief grief series as as an artist. But presumably, absolutely crucial information if you can't find it anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, during the during the series, we've been really lucky to work with um, funeral directors, death doulas palliative care nurses, hospices, gurdwaras, mosques, churches. Um, and so actually it, it has meant that we're kind of tapped into local knowledge, local resources, um, and are able to post things easily. And I think one of the real joys is um, people say, oh, you know, you've been making work about grief for 10 years. Doesn't it get boring? But actually, because it's always being infused with new voices and new perspectives, both from within the arts, you know, photographers, fairground sign writers, installation artists, but also people that have don't normally have any contact with the arts. So, you know, historians, uh, funeral caterers, um, Rosie at the Nas uh, National Death Centre is absolutely incredible and is like the font of all knowledge as far as um, funeral planning goes. So, yeah, we're, we're quite well networked now. Well, the National Death Centre, I've never, I'm writing that down. I've never heard of that before. Yeah, they're great. <laughs> really good. There's a there's a phone. There's a phone line as well that you can ring if you've got any concerns or questions. And if they can't answer it for you, they'll know someone who can. Also, we're really lucky in Leeds. We have Leeds Bereavement Forum and they're great. The fact that Leeds Bereavement Forum exists is uh, really marks us out in Leeds because a lot of other places don't have um, a resource like that. Before uh, you're gonna, you've chosen a piece of music for us and we're gonna hear that soon, but I, I, I just wondered if, if lockdown has changed changed this 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 pattern or this cultural pattern in this country, as you say, we of sort of being respectful and silent, has it has it meant that people are because sometimes you know limitation is inspiration. We have to adapt. We have to we have to respond to the restrictions, and, and often that's in a very creative way. I, do you get a sense that we are dealing well with it? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I think people people turn to creativity in times of need, don't they? Yeah. So, um, and actually, <laughs> it's been really interesting seeing the response to programmes like Grayson's Art Club. How many people have taken this time when they're at home, when they can't do the normal leisure activities they would to create art? So I think... Um, and I think, you know, I've seen lots of people marking their grief using art during lockdown. So I think I think the two subjects sort of go hand in hand. Um, but I do feel there's a leap forward. There's actually a really great um, death positive movement in the UK that's been slowly building over the last few years. And I feel like really now it's a conversation that everyone is recognizing is really vital to have but also improves our lives i think by talking about death we 
live more meaningful, fulfilled and strategic lives. That's a really nice way of putting it. I totally agree. And I think, you know, how could you ever become uh, tired of a subject, of your subject? Um, and uh, yes, and I, I ask about the lockdown because, and about this, I mean, I'm, I've sadly lost a friend last last week and we've got a, the funeral on on Wednesday. I played in a band with him for 25 years. He was a lovely mm. chap. But he's, but you know, it's, it's the, 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 the actual organisation of it is hard for the family. I mean, with 30... 30 people, I think, Max involved and can come and mm -hmm. not being able to sing. And we thought, well, can, can we hum? And no, Max, Max. you know, it's, 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 a, it's, it's really hard. But I think at the same time, um, and what about the Zoom funeral? Just I want to ask you about that before we move on. It's just I'm fascinated by this because, I mean, did, have you been to one of those? How, how do you feel about those? Well, I think it really depends on the person. And I think the biggest thing that, um, that grief series has taught me is that a one size fits all model is <laughs> is not really viable. Um, Zoom funerals might feel really work really wonderfully for one person and be absolutely the worst thing in the world for the next. Um, but I think anything that people can do to make it personal and to make it really speak of the life that person lived is a good thing, whether that's Zoom or outside at a distance or much quieter than would it, it would be usually. Thanks, Ellie. So what um, about the first piece of music you've chosen? Tell us about that. Uh, so the first piece of music I've chosen is uh, The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore by Frankie Valli. <laughs> and <laughs> I love it. I love it because it's a piece that is about grief or loss. Um, interpret that as, <laughs> as you wish. But it's also incredibly uplifting, <laughs> and um, it's in uh, a film called Truly Madly Deeply, which mm. is an old film, nice. but was one of the first films that I watched that really resonated with me about the experience of losing someone. Um, and then recently, uh, that song has reappeared at the end of a brilliant horror film. Well, I think it's brilliant, called Midsummer. Um, which is also, despite the horror genre, very much about grief, um, grief and community. So it's been nice being reminded of that song and, and that's the, the first piece I've chosen. Loneliness is the coat you wear. A deep shade of blue is always there.
So that was Frankie Valley's Sonic Gun Shine Anymore, chosen by Ellie Harrison, who's artistic director of the Grief series. And we've been hearing about what Ellie's been doing in the last six months, and what the Grief series and has been doing the team there in terms of really responding to people in terms of the situation we're in in a very fascinating and creative and real ways but Ellie tell us take us back to the beginning of of of, of your uh, sort of creative life as it were I mean did you have did you have any plan for this at all I mean uh, <laughs> <laughs> well I mean when I when I first started I was kind of torn between be, like being an actor actor and doing Shakespeare and Chekhov and things and then increasingly I felt frustrated that when you're on stage the audience sit in the dark and shut up and it felt very undemocratic and like they didn't really get a say and so I suppose I started working in participation and then actually it got to the point where after I'd shown my first uh, the first part of the grief series which is a solo show called Etiquette of Grief I realised that listening to other people was actually far more interesting than the art that I was making. So, um, or rather that the art provided a prompt or a space that could open up a conversation that otherwise wouldn't exist. And so I suppose I started thinking, well, I need to create spaces um, that have dialogue, that listen as well as speak, really. And did that, was that the case from the very start with the grief series then, that, that, I mean, you you talk about you talk about the pieces being very much co-created with with audience members. Has that been a something that's been common to all the projects you've made in the grief series? Yeah, they've all been co-authored, really, um, and they've also recognised that to reach different people, you need to use different art forms or different environments. So, um, part one was a, a solo show for a theatre, and then all of the rest of them have been in unusual spaces. So part two um, was like a story swap um, in hotels where I was dressed as Ellie the elephant or the elephant in the room. Mm. Um, and people could come along and have a glass of port and eat some monkey nuts and <laughs> share memories. Um, and then part three, we worked with 48 members of the public from right across the country. And we took their portrait with an object they'd inherited from someone they'd lost. Um, and we audio recorded that interview and then portrait and audio um, combined with kind of bespoke chairs to create a photography installation um, for empty houses. So you could go into the empty houses and listen to these stories and see the people that you were hearing in the headphones. And, um, and then we made uh, part four, The Unfair, which is an angry fun fair. <laughs> so... Um, you could go and do angry karaoke with a punch bag or you could write a really abusive letter to your ex and then we'd bottle it up for you so you don't have to. <laughs> um, but really, their space is co-authored with with people. I mean, the unfair, I worked with a group of young people and I was like, well, what do you want when you're really angry? What what space do you need that you don't currently have? Um and obviously, you know, on part three, going into people's homes is an incredibly intimate and personal thing to do. And um, we were really lucky that people were so open with us. Um, yeah, so it's always it's always co-authored. I mean, part part five is a an illustrated plan your own funeral kit or the crossing. And all of the illustrations um, are of real people and places, um, mainly in Yorkshire but um, some national ones as well, um, because we really didn't want to get into what does a vicar look like? What does an imam look like? We wanted it to feel personal and person-centered. So it's, this is what the imam we spoke to looks like. This is what the vicar we spoke to looks like. Um, and it was incredible to speak to the incredible range of people with different worldviews, different ideas, different traditions. Um, about how they want to end a, or mark the ending of a life. And do you feel there's a unity in terms of all those different traditions and religions in terms of the way we, it's a massive question, but the way, the, the way we as human beings approach death? There's tremendous breadth in how people choose to mark endings. Um, but I think 
I mean, coming back to that they're generally rituals that allow people to be compassionate. They're designed to help people be compassionate and look after each other um, and, and to respect the life of the person who's been lost. So, but I mean, how you choose to respect that, I mean, <laughs> Um, my mum's funeral, we uh, we didn't we didn't have a hearse. We had her beaten up bright orange VW camper van, and that was the perfect way of respecting her memory, um, and you know covering it with bright, colourful flowers. That was just right for her. Um, so I think it's a very I think it's a very personal thing as well. And the collaboration with Mexico City and the artists there. Hi, tell us a bit about that. That's it. Looks absolutely fascinating, and, and you can also this is a chance to tell us what an ofrenda is. Yeah. So, um, we've been working with artists from Mexico since 2017. So it's a slow burn. You know, I like to do things <laughs> slowly and thoroughly. Um, I think when we started out, uh, I was keen that anything we made um, wasn't a smash and grab of Mexican culture and that we really took our time to listen to the artists, to listen to communities in Mexico City, to embed ourselves within the culture and um, before trying to make any kind of response. Um, so I took a team of six artists out to Mexico City. And one of the things that we really fell in love with was the idea of building an ofrenda. So ofrendas are displays that people build um, in the run up to Day of the Dead. So around this time of year, um, the Day of the Dead celebrations are normally sort of from 30th of October to the 2nd of November. Um, and they operate in a similar way to Christmas trees. So in the same way that you might have a Christmas tree at home and a Christmas tree at work and a Christmas tree in the town square and one at school. Um, it's the same with ofrendas. People will have one at home, they'll have personal decorations that they bring out once a year, and then there might be a big kind of blingy ofrenda in the town square, and then there might be a, a little modest one in the bar. So they spring up everywhere, and, and on them are usually placed photographs of um, people that have been lost. So that might be Yanan, it might be um, someone, one of your ancestors from uh, distant history, or it might be someone famous. You know, it's it's really common to see um, political activists, David Bowie and someone's grandma all on the same ofrenda. Um, and I, th I think there's a beauty to that. More is more aesthetic. Um, so, yes, you place photographs, you place candles, you place their favourite food or significant object. So, you know, we went to a, an ofrenda at a punk market and it was, there were guitars all over it and there was Bowie and Hendrix and Amy Winehouse and um, each ofrenda takes on the personality of the people making it. Sounds absolutely wonderful, but very different to how we do things here. So when you brought it back here to West Yorkshire, what did, what did you do? How did, you, how did you do that? What did you do? <laughs> I mean, with caution, um, the artists, we work with amazing artists um, from Zion Studio um, in Mexico City, and they're incredible paper sculptors. And um, when we started trying to make an English ofrenda or an English interpretation of an ofrenda, they were like, wow, it's like... You're, you're really precise, Ellie, you're really careful. We would just put everything on. <laughs> and so it was interesting, but what's been, what's been really surprising is that communities and individuals in Yorkshire have really um, leapt on it. You know, people, are, people have sent me photographs saying, oh, I really lost, uh, I lost a really, really um, close family member and I can't be with them. But now that I know that I can, build an ofrenda I feel like they'll be with me in spirit or um, I was actually speaking to a young person that has a life-limiting illness and they said it's really nice to think that uh, when I'm gone I won't be gone because I'll be on the ofrenda and I think there's a sense that um, in Mexico people build ofrendas with the same care 
Well, they approach Day of the Dead with the same care as we might approach something like Christmas. So you get your family together, whether that is your um, biological given family or whether that's your chosen patchwork family, your community. Um, and you celebrate those of you that are on the offender. And, and it's beautiful to think that everyone gathers together together. Uh, whether they're <laughs> whether they're on the offrenda or whether they're still alive and mm. um, there's something communal and careful and individual about it and it's interesting that we come I mean, again it's very easy to generalize isn't it but in, you know we as in us this country whatever but it's but we, we don't tend to make stuff in in response to a death do we we hand we, we it seems we hand over sort of the responsibility way somebody says something they, they, whether it's the priest or the humanist celebrant or or people and they say something in a funeral we go and have some food and that's kind of way but the, the offender is 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 a, a sort of creative a making response to to the death and that that's seems there must be a very healing thing i mean it's in a to very, sound very trite but it sounds like a something that you are doing yeah absolutely and it's it comes with so much permission you know, permission to remember them in all of their um, uniqueness <laughs> and all of their foibles. And, you know, there's, uh, I'll be building an offender at home and um, I'm going to put Burger King on it because that's what my brother used to take me to get. Um, you know, he used to feed me all the junk food that I wasn't allowed, you know, like Lucky Charms cereal and stuff. And there's something great about the fact that you can... Um, you can make a beautiful sculpture for your friend, or you could do a beautiful painting or you could cook something really beautiful, but you could also just put a Burger King and a jar of gherkins on it. And that's, that's totally allowed. Like there's spaces for humor as well, um, which I, I think is a beautifully creative invitation to people. Well, I wonder whether um, having done this project with, in communities in West Yorkshire and in this country, whether people will take that on in some way and, and begin to do them to, to create a friend or their version of that outside the project, would that be something you'd like to see? I would love that. And you know, at the beginning of the project, I was because we're, we're building up to a and what we hope is going to be a nine day celebration, a sort of Leeds does Day of the Dead. We talk about it as the art baby of the two cultures. So um, it has its own identity, but you can see the parents, you know, Mexico City and Leeds coming through. Um, but, you know, I, at the beginning of the project, I was really worried about cultural appropriation and I was treading very carefully. And actually, everyone we spoke to in Mexico wasn't bothered. Um, and they finally got so annoyed with me talking about cultural appropriation that they made me a certificate formally giving me permission to and pe the people of Yorkshire permission to be making a friend us <laughs> to be um, like borrowing and learning from their culture um, and they they all signed it and then they all took photographic evidence of them signing it so um, <laughs> that was great and very very funny because they they took my seriousness and with kindness and generosity were able to laugh at me um so yeah if if a friend does spring up all over yorkshire i would be delighted and they would be too i'm sure yes absolutely. yeah yeah in in fact we've actually just made um a touch free a friend obviously we can't be with our mexican collaborators this year but um we've made a touch free a friend that's in the window of center for live art yorkshire on regent street and if people want to send us their photographs and memories then we're going to add those to the ofrenda so over the next two weeks and um, it will build and change and you can see new photos and memories being added and maybe some objects as well um yeah so so we've we've still found a way of keeping it alive even during lockdown fantastic um well so that just um we because we've we we won't hold you too long, Ali, because I'm sure you've got things to do. And but it's 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 just to ask you um, the inevitable question, which is <laughs> when you get to the end of grief, 
uh, you know, to this this grief series of seven. I mean, what are you going to do? You got we got. Is this number six? The Mexico, um, the Mexico. No, it's it's number seven. We're on seven oh, of seven. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, but. Um, so part seven, the, the kind of final ending of it is going to be this nine day festival in 2023. So we've got a while yet. We're, we're not hurrying. Um, so and, and the plan is that we'll be working with groups and um, from all round leads and we'll be commissioning loads of artists and there'll be practical talks and help the people um, and signposting to kind of local services, as well as a huge Day of the Dead sculpture that will take over the city centre of Leeds. So it's ambitious, but um, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and, and I guess we've been thinking a bit about what's after grief series, because, you know, inevitably I will grieve the grief series when it's over. Absolutely. Um, yes, yeah. I'm sure other people will too, because, uh, yeah, but uh, I well, any ideas? <laughs> you're still, you're I mean, I'm going to have a sleep. That's that's <laughs> first on the list. Yeah, that's first on the list. So have a sleep, um, and then and then see where we're at in 2023. I think this year, more than any year, has uh, taught us that sometimes planning too far in the future is unwise. Indeed, we've all learned that one. Um, well, Ellie, thanks so much for talking to us. And, and if no, people pleasure. want to find out more about the Grief Series, where do they go? They can go to griefseries.co.uk or we're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram as well. So and you can see pictures of our Touch Free Friender and you can contribute your photos and memories over the next couple of weeks. Brilliant. And uh, finally, um, the, the last piece of music that you've got that ties in somehow to your work or your life, what what, um, what have you chosen? Yeah, so I've chosen the song uh, Remember Me, which is from the Coco soundtrack, which is uh, Pixar's interpretation of uh, Day of the Dead, which has a lot of um, really well-researched content and also some things that make my Mexican collaborators wince a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but I think the song's beautiful and really captures um, the combination of sadness and celebration. Remember me, though I have to say goodbye. Remember me, don't let it make you cry. For even if I'm far away, I hold you in my heart. I sing a secret song to you, each night we are apart. Remember me. Oh, I have to travel far Remember me Each time you hear a sad guitar Know that I'm with you The only way that I can be Until you're in my arms again Remember me Recuérdame
Love the control. Love the command. Love the spacebar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. You're listening to Love the Words on East Leeds FM. Thanks so much to Ellie Harrison for that interview about the grief series. Now, an interview with Stephanie Shields. Steph has been involved with us for quite a few years. We've profiled her short stories and her poetry, very much involved in Otley with writing there. She's also a sheep farmer. She's got a new novel out. It's called The Strange Woman. I read it at the weekend. It's definitely worth getting hold of. It's about the Timble witches in the 17th century. Fascinating story. But also, there's a modern setting. It's a cleverly wrought novel, and we're going to hear about it now from Steph Shields. Hello, Peter. <laughs> uh, congratulations on the novel. It's a really interesting piece of work. And uh, so, Thank you. Well, tell us a little about it. Yeah, and it, really, what... What's it about? Well, um, it's, um, it's part historical uh, fiction and part romantic fiction. And um, it's also got a strand of uh, magical realism. So basically, it's, it's local history uh, with a personal significance. It's, as it were, a novel in two halves. Uh, the first bit set 400 years ago and the second half now. And um, what, uh, what actually set me going on this one was that uh, I, um, I moved to a, a place called Timble in the Washburn Valley. And um, as Peter know, you know, I, I farm sheep and I hadn't been here very long at all when I, I, start, uh, I started to hear about the Timble Witches from a local farmer who's descended from one of the accused women. And he was really indignant. It was hard to draw him out on this. He was indignant about the way these women had been treated then and really have been ever since. And quite right too, I thought. Um, it, it really is a case of history being in the hands of the literate, but it's worse than this because in, in this case, it was in the hands of the women's accuser. And this was a man called Edward Fairfax. And these poor women, although they were acquitted twice, to this day, they're called the Timble Witches. So really, it was farming the land that these women used to walk over that actually set me going on this and in truth you don't have to spend too long watching your flock before these women and what happened to them came into their mind mm. so that was one of the things that set me going on this but i really did love the the localness of it and, and i really had a sense as I read the book, of, of, of your knowledge, your being embedded in that place. And it really, it's, the whole place, the whole, the whole uh, first half of the book kind of, for me, sort of reeked in a good way of, of, <laughs> of, of sheep and, uh, and muck and murder and of that historical period. Can you read us a little from that book? Yes, certainly. Um, uh, I'll, I'll give you a reading um, from part one, and it's uh, chapter six, The Unfortunate Traveller. And this is about the man who drives the cart that carries the seven accused women to York Castle Jail. 
for trial at the Assizes. These women are going to have to go before the Red Judge of Westminster. It's the second time they've been in front of him, and they will have assumed that they will have been found guilty, even though they weren't, and um, would have been hanged. So this Cartman, he's, he's pretty unpleasant person and he gets to York Castle jail and hands his cargo over to the guards there. So here we go. He drove his wagon off, crossing back over the ancient bridge towards Middlegate. He was heading for his lodgings behind the tannery, not far from the river. A far from salubrious area he dwelt in, with a perpetual stench from animal skins of death and putrefaction. Breathing the air there was choking. He numbered amongst his neighbours chimney sweepers, jakes farmers, dirt daubers, vagrant rogues and labourers. He followed a route along North Street. He was seen to greet several acquaintances of the low sort as he went. They shouted abuse at each other in a jocular manner and made vulgar signs. Then he turned the wagon left down Tanneroe. He had taken drink, it is true, and stopped at hostelries between the castle jail and Tanner Street. Low, squalid dives. What happened next was unclear. When they found him in the morning, he was still sitting upright on his wagon seat, stiff and straight, with his hands locked round the reins. The kerchief round his neck was a little askew, true, but no more than a cough's twist. The scrofulous cluster had burst, oozed and seeped his frayed shirt. Next to him, sat Susanna Smithson's basket of provision, the cloth pulled open. There sat a half-eaten piece of bread, along with a cheese already encrusted with eager flies. The horses were fully harnessed and still standing, but not in the best shape. People were unwilling to come too close to check for any signs of life. They were repelled, Disconcerted, his face wore a ghastly grimace, a demonic contortion, as it would be recorded, a grinning, eyeless corpse. The whispers spread like plague. The devil needs a coachman. He's his man. He'll need no eyes for that. Lovely stuff. And stuff, I mean, it's it, it sort of has the feel of, of, of a of a book that's really thoroughly researched and there's quite an impressive index at the back and uh, a sort of glossary and references to things you've read. I mean, it, 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 how long did it take you to, to write this? Um, I'd say two and a half years, Peter, in truth. And, and you're quite right. There was a, um, a vast amount of research needed to be done because although I was writing a fiction, there's an awful lot of actual fact behind it. And one of the things that was quite challenging was to try and get the 17th century, early 17th century feel. The, the, the thing is set between 1621 and 1623. And I was very, very careful because even down to the, 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 mean, the actual words, the etymology, would those words that the women speak, would they have been used then? And um, it, it, was, it was quite quite a challenge to do this. Um, I needed to research uh, the history of the Assizes. I needed to go into um, the, the church history, some of the cases against the vicar, Nicholas Smithson. And um, also invaluable research, of course, was the, the literature of the time, which I'm very fond of. <laughs> Um, so you, you you did a bold thing in this. You made the second half book of the book um, contemporary. I mean, as in set now. Um, so tell us about that decision and 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 where you took it. 
Right, well, um, I, I suppose if, um, if hearing about the witches was the stimulus for the, the first half, for the second half, something very peculiar happened. Um, I was sitting on the, the south side of Timble, down near Timble Gill, watching my flock, and um, on a stone seat, and uh, there's a, a hole in, in the side of this seat. It's, uh, we actually did it for workers. We took an old gate post that had been thrown aside and made a base for it and made a nice seat for people to sit on and look down the valley. So anyway, there's a gate post hole and a card was stuffed in this hole. And that's what gave me the idea because it was someone's, a, a woman, sounded like a fairly young woman's business card, make do amend, and it was, it was quite a sparky card, and it made me think, what if, what if this card had fallen into the wrong hands? And um, so I imagined how it would be, I imagined a rather curmudgeonly North Yorkshire sheep farmer with this card from someone from Hebden Bridge, and I thought, hmm, an interesting culture thing here. So I pursued it and the whole thing came gradually unfolded to me of what I could do with it. But the real delight was the thought that this farmer was the farmer of someone who Fairfax, the poet, refers to as the strange woman, never ever names who she is. So I call her Margaret Hall. And that was a great freedom because a lot of the families round and about have descended from these women. And to have one who I could make up entirely actually saved me from offending anyone's sensibilities about their forebear. <laughs> yes, I didn't realise that, that Margaret was made up. I, I thought she was, again, one of the, uh, one of the accused. No, he names six, and one he calls the strange woman. So I, I made her, I thought, well, I can do what I want with her. And I made her a herbalist hedge witch, because, of course, at the time, one of the reasons for making these accusations was to get rid of women who were a nuisance. And um, there was a trend at the time, the physicians, who were all male, Wanted, um, wanted herbalists and midwives and nurses banned. Um, they, they were the doctors and they were in charge of the health of the nation. But, of course, if you were poor, you couldn't afford a physician and you turned to your local midwife or your, your herbalist for a cure. And in truth, um, it's, it's well documented the midwives, with their own hands-on knowledge, were far more useful than the physicians. Well, you've really researched that too. I mean, the, the, the kind of the herbal, uh, the herbal stuff, the, the concoctions and, and remedies. And, <laughs> yeah, I, can, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that was a good, a really enjoyable <laughs> bit of research. I can tell. I can tell when I was reading it. But let's let's hear a bit of the uh, from the second half of the book, if you wouldn't mind, Steph. Yeah, sure. Um, this is uh, from the modern day part then, and it's from the chapter Meeting the Family. And this is the first meeting between the lead female, the girl on the card, Izzy, and the 17th century seven. Here we go. It takes some courage to deliberately put yourself in the path of a 400 year old woman Izzy has waited patiently on the stone seat. The sun is warm on her face. It is a hot afternoon for late March. Such balmy days have become more common of late, but they still thrill the soul and raise the spirits, though each such day carries a warning of the recent warming. Izzy has become strangely distracted she is reliving the moment she pushed her business card into the hole. That seemed like a lifetime ago. Linda, her friend, had begged her not to, but she had insisted and cast away caution. Now she has Foster and their baby on its way. She settled in the beautifully refurbished Black Crow Farm. She feels fortunate 
and she suspects she owes so much to the strange woman she waits for. Izzy's fingers trace the hole in the stone slab she's sitting on. Then, something. The A string sounds sweetly, as if now played on an ancient instrument, a viol. Izzy raises her eyes, a shimmering on the gill's edge, a heat haze in March. No, an instability in shape and form, a soft shifting as if the fabric of the landscape is set loose from its moorings. Then a subtle rift in the trembling landscape from which something seeps. At first, it is like a mist creeping up off the beck itself. Izzy sees the mist twirl and twist over the wooden stile. It follows the diagonal path across the field. She's mesmerised. As it drifts towards her, about halfway up, Izzy begins to make out forms, human forms, the shape of women. They come into focus, women of different ages, dressed from a different time. Six of them there are. They fall into a single file, mysterious dancers, led by the stoutest, stiffest, most aged. They skim the surface of the meadow, just brushing the winter's dry end grass tufts. A weird procession they form. Izzy, Izzy, be calm, don't fear. Izzy, Izzy, we six draw near. Izzy, a surprisingly soft voice in her right ear. Izzy turns round sharply. There, leaning over the dry stone wall, is Margaret. I knew you would come. I summoned you. How do we get hold of the novelist? Somebody's listening to this, says, I want to read that book right away. What do they do? Well, um, it's in uh, paperback or e-book. Obviously, there's, there's Amazon. But um, if you'd like a, a paperback copy, the new bookshop.org um, there, through this, you can support your local bookshop. Um, if it was this area, you'd think of th places like um, Imagine Things in Harrogate or um, the bookshop on the square, Otley. Um, so wherever your, your local bookshop is, um, you can name them if you ordered it through the, um, the bookshop.org. Great. And that opened in the UK the day the book was released. <laughs> I'm going to write that down. Bookshop. I didn't know about that. Bookshop.org. Oh yeah, it's it's really good actually. It's um, it's a good way of doing it. And then any um, any uh, so much goes to your local bookshop. So it's it's rather a fine thing, in fact. Very good. Um, well, I'm. Yeah. It's called The Strange Woman. It's by Stephanie Shields. It's got a lovely illustration on the front by Jackie Fleming. Which I, and so it's very distinctive. Uh, thanks yeah. ever so much for talking to us, Steph. I'm sorry about my rather weird echo. Um, <laughs> no. Right, um, just to say, I was so delighted Jackie did the cover. She did the cover for my, my last book, and uh, I'm so delighted she did this one. She, she manages to capture the essence. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Peter. Love the haiku. Love the sonnet. Love the quatrain and the couplet. Love the words. From East Leeds FM.